This episode of Trapital is brought to you by Audience, the place to improve your marketing strategy. One of the most important resources for any marketer is to have the best data and insights possible, especially since there's a lot of useless information out there. That's why I recommend Audience. We use their demand intelligence product for our Trapital report in the Audience profile section, and it helped us track customer trends, gain insights into social audience profiles, identify potential partners for companies to work with, and more. It was one of the most popular sections of the report. And there are so many use cases for audience, especially in music, media, and entertainment. You and your business partners are pitched all the time by brands and companies, but how do you know which ones will deliver the best results or which partners to pursue on your own? And that's where your audience shines. To help you get started, Trapital listeners get a free trial of audience. You can learn more at audience.com. That's A-U-D-I-N-S-E.com. When Nike was rising up and trying to essentially get where Adidas was, they looked at Adidas and its history and its heritage as this North Star that Nike just couldn't necessarily gravitate towards. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. Adidas may have the most bizarre, intense, crazy backstory of any of the major athletic apparel companies. This is a company that has nearly a 100-year history, and some of those early years weren't too pleasant to look back on. This is a company that has major ties to the Nazi party. This is a company whose founders split up and led to the launch of Puma. This is also a company that gave us hip-hop's first seven-figure endorsement deal for a major artist. This is also a company that has had arguably one of the most successful non-athlete partnerships we've ever seen. But this is also a company that saw that same athlete partnership crumble with additional ties to anti-Semitism with Sting, even more considering the backstory of this company. This is also the company that has rivaled its biggest competitor, Nike, closer than any other company in the world. This is also a company that has had an impressive backstory, nearly going bankrupt 30 years ago, and has invested in technology and innovation and has proven itself time and time again to be one of the leaders in culture, influence, not just in North America, but across the world, especially when you look at its influence in soccer. This is a really fun one to dive into. I'm joined by Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, friend of the pod, and we break it all down. The highs, the lows, the missed opportunities, and more. So come join us as we take a trip down memory lane and break down one of the most influential companies in athletic apparel and its influence on culture, music, and more. All right, we're back with another deep dive episode Zach and I finished our deep dive on Reebok. It was only right to do Adidas. We go from one big titan to the next. Absolutely. Good to be here. Likewise. Thanks for doing this one. I'm glad you convinced me to do this one too, because I know that we're thinking it through, especially with everything going on in the world right now. But you brought up the good point that now's a better time than ever to dive into this story. Yeah, I think with something like this, you know, you could either push it back into a less kind of hot button time or, you know, kind of dive right in and and really, you know, we can explore it through the lens of not only history, but current events and between what's going on in the Middle East and, you know, uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, everything else that's happening around the world, um, you know, stuff that's been buried in the past with Adidas, uh, stuff that's been happening more recently with Kanye. There's just a lot to dig into. And, you know, it's something um, I think that that's really worth examining uh, and, and you know, kind of trying to draw some lessons and meaning from it. This was fascinating, too, to do the research on, not even so much because of the stuff that comes up, which we're about to get into, but based on the outlet or the source, how much they were willing to share or not share about the past of this company is always fascinating to see what lines they're willing to go through. But we're going to get into it in this episode. And that's a good place to start because this company, let's actually start in 1900 because that's when the founder, Adolf Dassler, was born. He's from Germany, grew up in a German town. By the time he was a teenager, he was very interested in sports, saw that all these athletes were wearing shoes and saw a connection there and wanted to explore that as much as he could, but had to take a stop when World War I comes around. He enlists in the German army as a teenager. He comes back from the army 
And at this point, Germany's in a post-war depression state. The country isn't doing the best. So he then leans into the craft that he learns, which is shoe cobbling, focuses on that. And that then becomes the origin story for the Dassler Brothers Shoe Factory. And that's between him and then his brother Rudolph that started in 1924. We're almost at the 100-year anniversary of this, of the company that eventually became Adidas. Well, that's right. And I think what's kind of interesting, you know, you don't really think about cleats as being like a big seller or kind of like a founding type of thing, like a like a prime vehicle for moving shoes. But that's what Adidas was really known for in the early days. And their big innovation was moving toward rubber cleats instead of metal spikes, which obviously still exists, but it, but rubber and, you know, so other materials being used for cleats were not so common um, until, until Adidas started doing it and um, actually started, you know, selling hundreds of thousands of pairs a year going into the 1920s and 30s, even outfitted Jesse Owens with these rubber cleats when he came to Germany for the 1936 Berlin Olympics, uh, which of course was, you know, a really important moment in, in world history as well. And that Olympic time is so fascinating because while one of our American heroes here, who frankly didn't get enough love from this country, but still his shoes sold, everyone in America was following to go buy the shoes because he won four gold medals in these. But World War II is actually a huge moment for these brothers as well, because as we know, both unfortunately and disgracefully, they were members of the Nazi party. They joined the Nazi party. They actually paused production at the factory where they were making some of the shoes so that they could build anti-tank weapons that were used to fight against the Allied tanks. While the U.S. is buying up the shoes that they assume to be coming from this factory, they're also building weapons to fight against our country as well. And then additionally, U.S. troops actually tried to destroy that same factory, but it was Adi Dassler's wife that was trying to convince the soldiers that only shoes were being manufactured there. But it was this ironic thing because the soldiers and the people assume that, okay, this is the product of what Jesse Owens is providing us, but no, they're actually building weapons of mass destruction in that factory. So it was this very bizarre time that really does color where this company was and where the world was at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And just layer upon layer of complexity here, right? You had Jesse Owens going into Berlin as a black man, you know, sort of completely ruining Hitler's fantasy of an all Aryan, you know, dominated Olympics by winning those four gold medals. Um, but he's wearing the shoes that are manufactured by these brothers who, you know, were in the Nazi party and became part of the German war machine. Then at the same time, uh, Jesse Owens, of course, at home is still treated as a second class citizen in the age of segregation in the United States. So um, it's just uh, so many different layers to this to this whole thing. And I think that's so important to understand, you know, as you kind of like look at the, the way that the history of Adidas kind of unfolds in the in the coming decades. And especially, too, because after this, these brothers end up splitting up. It's one of these things where it seems like they were working in lockstep, but they end up splitting up. And for a little bit of context, Addy was the one that was focused on product innovation. As you mentioned, the cleats that set the early path for something that I think Adidas continued, which we'll talk about. And the brother was more thinking about, okay, what's the next thing? How do we make them work together? So the product and innovation together, but they end up splitting up. There's been certain rumors about this. If you look at some outlets, some say that they had split up because of general irreconcilable differences. You look at other outlets, they said that there was some type of affair with one of their wives or something like that. Other outlets have even said that one of the brothers said that the other one was giving information to the allied forces during World War II. So who knows actually what happened there? But the more interesting part is that the other brother, Rudolph, goes and starts another apparel and footwear company himself, and that company becomes Puma. And, you know, also just for the, the context in the post-war years, of course, obviously the allies win, the Nazis are defeated. And in fact, in Germany, uh, you know, obviously the, the Nazi party is, is vanquished and but in Germany, it becomes illegal to, you know, to, to sort of show any support for um, the Nazi cause or even to display Nazi symbols, stuff like that. And so there's this great sort of like renouncing of that, you know, at the time, immediate past. Um, and yet still you have these two companies that are, you know, sort of coming out of that disgraceful uh, past and, and moving into the future as being two of the biggest 
shoemakers in the world, right? Um, so they, as they, they split up, they go their different ways, but, but their past still, you know, is haunting them, right? Even Adi's real name is Adolf, a constant reminder of, uh, of sort of where Adidas came from. Um, as the war becomes further and further in the rear view mirror, you start to see Adidas and Puma both kind of gravitate toward athletics, the running shoes, the spikes, things like that. But, but it's more than just about spikes now. Uh, you know, ath- athletic shoes as the century continues are, are just, you know, becoming this multi-billion dollar industry. And both these companies are, are right at the center of it. And the sport that becomes the big focus for them, of course, is soccer, just given how global that is. One of the big moments for Adidas came 1954. They end up outfitting Germany. Germany's fighting against a Hungary team that was seen as the big villain that they wanted to try to beat. And eventually they beat Hungary in that the, in the game. Everyone on the team is wearing Adidas sneakers. So that then becomes a big cultural footprint and in many ways sets the tone for this company having such ties to soccer that it continues to this day. Since 1970, Adidas has been the official ball for the World Cup and every World Cup after that. This has also been the official ball for the Euro Cup, the Champions League, and so many of the prominent teams and countries that still play soccer today. This brand, probably more than any, is more associated with football and its continued growth kind of wonder if if that's why in some ways adidas was a little bit slow to come to the place where it was in america you know things were so dominated by you know over the years converse nike reebok um you know adidas kind of had had a moment which we'll get into in in the 80s when they kind of went away in the 90s but you know i i do think the rise of soccer in the u.s is a really interesting part of that and as it became bigger and bigger you know like let's say over the past couple of decades you know that that does kind of go hand in hand with the rise of adidas in the united states along with adidas re-embracing pop culture and and particularly hip-hop there's so much and It's also interesting, too, because there's so much history and influence that this company had even before its biggest competitor, Nike, comes into the picture. You look at something like the the Pele Pact just one year into when Nike ends up becoming formed as a company in 1969. So there's so much history and footwear, but I think sometimes our time frame can think about things, especially in a U.S. North America way, only thinking about the brands that matter here. I mean, in the Pele Pact, you know, let's call it what it is, collusion, or at least that's what it was meant to be, right? Uh, the two brothers colluding, despite disliking each other, to, to not sign Pele because they didn't want to get into a bidding war because they figured it would basically bankrupt either of their companies because it would go so high. Uh, and then at the last minute, Puma comes in and, and, and signs them, uh, you know, but I guess their relationship couldn't have gotten any worse. So, so there you have it. Soccer is a big part of it, but they also start to get some popularity within the streets, especially the streets in New York around this time. So this is the 70s and even the early 80s. You're seeing the break dancers, you're seeing the b-boys, you're seeing the graffiti artists wearing these shoes and wearing them out in public. And this was probably one of the earliest moments where these shoes are not just being a functional thing, which in many ways was always the focus that Adolf Dassler had. But No, these also serve a more leisure and athletic style. And this is something that Adidas clearly had struggled with in terms of its identity. And it's had plenty of highs and lows, which we'll get into. But this was probably the early point of it here. And as we know, with so many things we've talked about in this episode, these are elements of hip hop culture and how that is the origin for so much of how that influences modern day consumerism. Yeah. And it's just kind of wild to think about how these teenagers in the Bronx we're putting on these shoes, which, you know, I don't know if, if they knew the history, right? I mean, on the one hand, shoes that were popularized by an American hero, Jesse Owens, which were also made by a family that, you know, had been affiliated with the Nazi party. My, my guess is that it was just like, oh, this is a cool looking shoe or this is what's available, you know, but what a complex history uh, of a shoe to be deposited into the South Bronx at the dawn of the era of hip hop. And so I think that leads kind of directly, whatever reason hip hop uh, is kind of attracted to Adidas, it, it leads into this look that you see around DMC. It's the shell toes, it's the dookie chains, you know, the, the, that's the kangles, like that's the look. And it just becomes sort of this part of the hip hop uniform. And I don't know, like, what do you think it was that caused that first kind of like wave of Adidas to be involved um, in, in the culture? Yeah, there's something about some of those early, what is now branded as original sneakers that just have such versatility, like the Stan Smiths, 
the tennis sneakers or the superstars or the Sambas. There's so much in them that clearly have other applicable use cases. And I know that that's something that's core with sneaker culture, right? Basketball sneakers being worn not to play basketball. But I do think that's something that stuck in with them and that stop and that style is just so timeless and everything. It's something that I know that a lot of other companies probably experienced to some extent, but I do think especially with Adidas, it was just so versatile, so versatile in so many ways, pretty much every original model that they had. You know, and I think that that's kind of why the branding with an impact became even more successful. And you started to see, you know, a song like my Adidas that came up organically. I mean, what a great talk about, you know, organic, authentic marketing. I mean, these guys were not initially paid to, to be doing that. And, um, of course, Russell Simmons brings a bunch of uh, Adidas executives to the garden to see Run DMC perform. And he has them, you know, hold up their, they say, you know, like, everybody in the audience, you know, hold up your Adidas and, you know, up go like 15,000 pairs of, uh, of shell toes. And then they play the song, my Adidas. And, and basically off that, you know, Russell Simmons is able to get Run DMC that first seven-figure um, endorsement deal in hip-hop history uh, to tie up with Adidas, you know, and, and I think that sort of like cements not only Adidas status in hip-hop, but also sort of hip-hop as a as a commercial force more broadly. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but like, you know, that's sort of like the template uh, for what hip-hop can do for, you know, for not just corporate America, but the corporate world. This, this sort of like the most authentic expression of, of somebody's brand. And, um, you know, I, I think transcends Adidas, transcends footwear, transcends hip hop. And that moment there was really kind of beginning of all that. It was the first hip hop act, first hip hop group in general to receive any type of deal to that level. And it's still something we talk about because of how influential it was. And I think it's also important too, because of where Adidas was as a company at the time as well, because this was actually a pretty rough time for the company that was leading up to. So late seventies, Addy Dassler dies, then his wife and his son take over. Soon after that, unfortunately, the wife passes away, then it's solely in the son's hand. And the son wants to take a bit of a different spin on things. The son wants to lean even more into some of the leisure and some of the culture that's around it. And while it obviously brought great things like this My Adidas campaign and the, and the endorsement deal that Run DMC got in their exclusive shoe, it also led to a lot of confusion in terms of where things were going and where things you know looked from that perspective. And it ended up being a tough decade and we'll get into how things eventually turned around for them. But this wasn't exactly the easiest time. And I think sometimes these companies that end up keeping things in-house, there'll be a son or someone like that that takes over. The son wants to stand out themselves from the father in some type of way. They try to do things differently. But for a company like this, despite all of the vile and unfortunate and horrible things that Addy Dassler clearly was pushing as a Nazi and other things. What are the things about this company's heritage in terms of focusing solely on the shoe product and the innovation that's there that actually help it tie back to its roots? So in some ways, I almost feel bad for Run DMC because this could have been a launching pad for so much more to come for other hip hop artists, for things to be able to be bred with it. But this required Russell Simmons to pull this Adidas executive team to come here, see this, to make sure that they saw themselves. And it was just treated as a one-off thing. It wasn't something that compounded just given the explosion that hip hop had years and years after this in the late 80s and early 90s. There was a path there for Run DMC to, to create something like Easy, right? To do some kind of actual participation, some kind of royalty, some kind of profit share, whatever, you know, uh, to build, to build out that kind of thing. And you had just seen probably, it was right around that time that Nike signed Jordan and signed him to like ridiculous unheard of deal. Why not make a big splash, try, try to tie up with, uh, run DMC in, in a more long-term sort of way. But, you know, but it was such an early phase, I think for, for hip hop and the corporate world. And it, you know, the, I think that just wasn't really on the table, but I remember in this era, you know, I was growing up and my dad always wore Adidas and he would, he had these like white, green stripes, low tops. I think they were, now they're called the country OGs. And back then they were just country. Um, but they had these sort of like, the soles were sort of like 
they had this cutaway and it almost looked like marzipan that you were, it was like you were walking on marzipan or something. And I just always kind of thought of them as like nerdy dad shoes, you know, it was so funny as I got older and Adidas sort of started getting cool again. It also speaks to, you know, my, my dad's Jewish, uh, you know, as am I, and, and his family was largely wiped out in the Holocaust. And, but the fact that he sort of gravitated to Adidas, you know, by the, let's say the late eighties, my dad, who, who was really kind of aware of that stuff and, and history and, to be wearing these shoes like almost religiously, I think speaks to how Adidas had sort of recovered from uh, from its early associations. And now, you know, by the time we're getting into the early 90s, it's like Adidas was long gone. His son had died. And, you know, the, the management had moved on to something you know, totally different. And people had sort of largely forgotten about the, the company's past. And the association was more with like soccer or, you know, run DMC or, or um Although it was a, a difficult decade uh, from a business perspective, I think it also marked, you know, really significant passage of time. Because this is the moment where things do turn around. 1992, the company almost goes bankrupt. And after that, this was around the time when they're transitioning with leadership. And one of the executives actually brings in two of Nike's ex business managers. So this was Rene Jaggi, who was the CEO at the time. He brings in two of Nike's ex-business managers to come in. They look through the Adidas Museum and they have this quote where they say, it only took about five minutes in the museum before I realized that these people had a gold mine in their hands and that they really had no idea what they had. End quote. This is from a, a Marketing Dive article where they had interviewed them. And these folks started as consultants, then creatives, and then they became the CEOs of Adidas America to help write the ship with some of the leadership that eventually came that we'll talk about. But this was interesting because you had these ex-Nike executives who were coming in and one of their big pushes was that when Nike was rising up and trying to essentially get where Adidas was, they looked at Adidas and its history and its heritage as this North Star that Nike just couldn't necessarily gravitate towards. It took Nike time to get there. Obviously, they did. But you have the people in Adidas that are looking at it like, oh, shit, what the hell do we do right now? So it takes the outsiders coming in to be like, hey, you have this really valuable thing here and you're not executing on it right now. And then that becomes part of the big shift for them to do two things. One, focus more on the innovation. So really get honed in on the product and Adidas's performance line, which is still where a majority of their sales come from, but then also tap into the Adidas Originals line as well with some of the classic sneakers that we'll talk about. And then this brings up the new leadership that they have of Robert Louis Dreyfus, who is actually um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, the actress, is a second cousin of his, and he comes in to be the leader to help write the ship for Adidas. Robert Louis-Dreyfus, uh, French citizen, uh, Jewish dad, Catholic mom. So again, you know, an interesting wrinkle with the, the sort of history of the company. And um, it was his buddy, soccer team owner, who had bought Adidas, you know, and then it sort of like went into bankruptcy, but then he kind of pulled it out and was anyway, was able to sort of really resurrect the business and triple uh, revenues in, in a matter of years. And again, there's somebody who, who had a, a pretty strong um, connection to soccer and to the sporting world, which I think really kind of like solidified Adidas's um, sort of image and what it wanted to be, you know, in, in the 90s at that time, as it was kind of rebuilding itself. He made a few changes that I think were big. They started making some strategic acquisitions around this time. They required that brand. Um, Solomon, this was the start of them acquiring other companies that could fit. I believe TaylorMade, the golf brand, had came into the loop around this time. And they really leaned into where they felt like they were strongest in. I think this is probably a good time to talk about the originals piece because Uncoincidentally, this is when a lot of the Adidas originals came back in to style. I know you and I were talking before we recorded being around the same age. Adidas superstars were quite popular when we were in high school and you saw them everywhere. I think as well, the Adidas slides were pretty popular as well. Like people having those all the time, the Sambas, the indoor soccer sneakers. So it wasn't just people not wearing basketball sneakers to actually play basketball for fashion. It was all of these other things that I think Adidas was able to lean into. And then you'd see them having different colorways and stuff like that. And it was one of these things where even though they ne didn't necessarily go out of style, I never felt like they had flooded the market or that these were ever on the racks of TJ Maxx or Marshalls, like as we talked about in the Reebok episode. I feel like they timed it right for where 
culture was, especially with the teenagers and even those in their early 20s that were buying shoes like that in the late 90s and early 2000s. But in a funny way, I wonder if it's sort of like uh, the turmoil that the company went through, you know, in the early to mid 90s kind of kept it out of the running from a lot of the sort of overproduction that you saw maybe with Reebok. We talked about this last time, but Reebok and Nike was like Reebok versus Nike. You know, are you Reebok kid or are you a Nike kid? Uh, and Adidas wasn't really even in the conversation at that point, at least not in the US. Um, and so much revolved around basketball and Adidas just wasn't you know, sort of like in it. Adidas could have been in it uh, had they signed Michael Jordan, the uh, the fog of the past, who knows what really happened. But there was a, a Wall Street Journal article several years ago and, and basically they interviewed this old Adidas employee who said, yeah, there was some discussion of signing Michael Jordan to Adidas back when he came out of college, but the execs thought he was too short. They, they only wanted big men. And also, as we talked about before, you know, um, it, it turned out that, you know, big men just don't sell sneakers as well for the most part. And that might have been just like a really deep miscalculation on the part of Adidas. Also, maybe not understanding basketball like they understood soccer. A missed opportunity that like, you know, what might have been. I mean, the whole trajectory of the company obviously would have been different. The trajectory of Nike would have been different. The Yeezy thing, maybe there wouldn't have been a Jordan. So, you know, Nike would have been in the underdog position. Who knows? But I think that, you know, in any case, to, to your point, Adidas didn't feel like it had been sort of like overproduced by the time, you know, we were in high school, like let's say in the early to mid aughts. And so the fact that putting on something that wasn't on the discount rack, if you had Sambas or whatever, you know, that was like a little more, a little more palatable. And, you know, I think especially coming out of the late nineties and the shiny suit era, you know, there were like a lot of big flashy sneakers when there was, I mean, I think Sambas were this kind of like understated type of thing. And, you know, and, and maybe it was like sort of a counter reaction to that. And even in, in that era, when you saw like Jay-Z or 50 Cent putting out sneakers, they were kind of understated low tops along, along those same lines. So uh, you know, I wonder if also just that silhouette was, you know, that kind of ballpark um, of a silhouette was becoming more and more um, in fashion after the kind of gaudy uh, late 90s era. This episode of Trapital is brought to you by Bevel. It's December. The holiday season is in full gear. My friends at Bevel are back and have something special for you. They're spreading that holiday joy and extending their exclusive Friends and family discount to you and other Trapital listeners by offering a 20% discount on everything site-wide. Yes, everything. But the promotion ends on December 22nd. You already know that I've been a fan of Bevel from the beginning. I bought my older brother the razor as a holiday gift a few years ago, and he still has it today. Their quality products are the perfect gift for the people you love. Beat the last-minute holiday rush and shop Bevel goods and devices today. This limited time offer ends Friday, December 22nd, so don't miss out. Go to getbevel.com. That's G-E-T-B-E-V-E-L.com or click the link in our show notes. Most of the popular sneaker companies at the time at least had some basic profile sneaker. Nike had their Air Force One, or if you're on the West Coast, you had your Cortez. Adidas had your Superstars. You also had the Sambas and the Stan Smiths. Puma also had a similar type of sneaker, wasn't nearly as popular. Reebok had their classics. So everyone had some version of this that they were trying to sell. I saw them all the time at Foot Locker back when they had the buy one, get one half off deals for um, back to school specials and stuff like that. But with this, I feel like this is around the time where though Adidas and Nike started to feel like it was more of a thing, not necessarily in the 90s, because as we mentioned, that was probably more Nike and Reebok. But I felt like in the 2000s, especially after the acquisition, you started to see more of this. And there are a few interesting quotes here from a few executives that I thought was interesting, where people felt like if you look at Nike's mission statement, it's more about idolizing the hero and putting that up front and forward versus Adidas is more about the lifestyle and the perception and even how that shifted with how they looked into different marketing spend and where they put stuff where people felt like Nike that put more stuff into big advertisements, whether it's the ones you've seen with Colin Kaepernick or Serena Williams or Michael Jordan, Tiger, athletes like that versus Adidas was a bit more into the big event sponsorships. They favored athletes too, but they're probably more into the big event things and stuff like that. And I've thought about that a few times just in the partnerships and even things they've done with Wheaties and brands like that. It does feel like at times they tried to have more of a catch-all than trying to build up this individual icon. 
it was the middle road between what Nike had done and what Reebok had done, right? If you bet big on individuals, you know, that can really pay off, like in the case of Jordan, obviously. But, you know, I, I think also when you put the individual front and center, if you bet on the wrong one, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work out so well for you. So with Adidas, you know, having that focus on leagues and events and things like that, I think created sort of this solid, you know, platform uh, for, for it to continue to make inroads in the US. And I think too that the connection to soccer felt a bit more closely tied to the spirit of engineering and innovation and product and focus there that also probably lends itself to just certain perceptions of German technology overall, whether you look at what they've done in car production like Mercedes-Benz and BMW and brands like that. I feel like there's an alignment there where I think that sports like football or basketball maybe seem slight engineering oriented, even though there's clearly just as much that goes into those things. But they eventually got to those brands later. But the basketball piece has always been interesting because I think it's an area that they probably struggled with in a lot of ways. I remember in like the late 90s, early 2000s, they actually had Kobe Bryant and he had a few sneakers that were exclusive with Adidas. Those sneakers were hideous, by the way, but they, they were what they were. But then he eventually left to go with Nike. And there was also this talk at the time about the Adidas curse that I think became a bit more popular in the late 2000s and early 2010s with athletes like Tracy McGrady, Derek Rose, Robert Griffin III. High-profile athletes are wearing Adidas sneakers and had career-altering injuries. So I think with certain cultural aspects of sneakers pre-Yeezy, it was a bit of a difficult area for them. And maybe explains a little bit why they moved away from some of the the sports stars and and started you know pushing a little harder on some of the pop culture individuals that we're going to get into soon. We're right now at least from a time frame. We're talking in the two thousands. We've already talked about the Reebok acquisition at least in the Reebok episode that we did. But I think just for context here, if you haven't listened to that episode, we can just provide a few high levels of this was essentially Reebok's opportunity to get the cultural tie-in because that's what they wanted. They wanted to have more cultural relevancy the same way that Adidas did in the early 2000s with Allen Iverson, Shaq, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, two of the biggest NBA players, two of the biggest rappers. They had them on their roster and they also had this big sports leagues as well. So it's a bit ironic that Adidas, the company that had the first ever endorsement deal with a hip-hop artist, now is paying $4 billion in order to acquire another company that now has closer ties with them. And essentially, as we know, they gutted the company of its cultural elements and then turned that company into a CrossFit company. But I do think that that at least helped Adidas get more traction than it probably had pre-acquisition. Yeah. You know, I, I think that maybe Adidas thought that it was buying the Jay-Z relationship or the 50 Cent relationship or at least something like that. Um, but of course, you know, and we talked about this before too, but, you know, Jay-Z was kind of coming in at a weird time having the shoe deal. He was retiring. You're, are you really going to uh, bet on, on you know, signing a shoe deal if somebody's about to retire? I mean, that's kind of a, like a weird um, strategy. It sort of like wasn't the right moment, you know, in, in some of these careers to be making them. And really all along, you know, Adidas maybe was, was paying extra to, to buy into that. But here they had this great, you know, heritage with hip hop. Uh, dating back to run DMC. And, you know, you wonder if like they should like shouldn't even bother with Reebok and just kind of, you know, I don't know, hired some more Nike consultants and, and have them, you know, dig up some old run DMC footage and, you know, kind of like roll with that um, instead of spending uh, so much money to, to acquire Reebok. You got to think that there, there could have been a better way to do it than spending all that money on Reebok. Yeah, it's a deal that they haven't come out flat and said, we regret doing this deal, but they have said that they acquired the company and realized how much of a mess that they thought it was. And whether it was actually a mess or not, I think, is up for debate. But again, it's just completely different cultures. Going back, Adidas had more of that engineering focus mentality. I think Reebok was probably set up a bit more like a brand agency kind of vibe to be like, okay, yes, let's spend money to have this big 
Allen Iverson Jadakiss commercial to go do this up. Let's make this blacktop sub brand to be all connected with uh, that type of culture. And it was just completely different. So, yeah. And I think with that, I did want to talk about they eventually divested the Reebok brand, but that wasn't the only brand that they eventually divested. They divested Rockport, TaylorMade, CCM, that hockey brand, and so many others. We have to ask, is Adidas good at acquisitions? Like what's going on here? I mean, if you have a brand that is that strong and it has that much sort of authenticity, why would you be paying for other brands to, to sort of like bring in, you know, rather than just applying your own or, you know, bringing on stars from different sports or parts of pop culture? Uh, you know, I think it speaks to like not knowing quite what to do. You know, of course, like some of it has to do with um, figuring out market share and, you know, you just want to buy a bunch of market share. That's one way of doing it. But that seems like more of a bean counter strategy and less a great way of doing business. And, you know, I think that Adidas kind of realized that, you know, that that was the way to go. And I think you see great brands, you know, a lot of great brands don't make a ton of um, acquisitions like, you know, Apple, right? They just lean on the Apple part. And every now and then there's a Beats by Dre that comes along and there's a reason to make it happen. But yeah, I, I think Adidas historically has proven to be not all that great at acquisitions. And now the brands are with ABG, as you had called out. Yep. Yep, they are. So despite the mixed bag of acquisitions that Adidas has had, one of its partnerships actually was probably the best non-athlete partnership that we've seen a sneaker company have with a non-athlete, and that's their partnership with Yeezy. And I think that kicked off a pretty successful run in the 2010s that this company had. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the only way to put it, but it kind of goes back to to the beginning of of our conversation about the history of Adidas and sports was kind of always... Uh, their thing. Um, but, you know, when you kind of look at, at where they were um, when the in the 2010s, you know, just as the easy deal is about to come into play, Adidas was doing well, but it, it did not have anything that could possibly compete with their Jordan. And, you know, and who did? You know, I think a lot of times some of the deals that work out the best for entertainers are ones where it's just such a wild thing that nobody really ever like they get such great terms because nobody could ever really expect how 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 well the thing could do. Um, and you, the thing you've seen with Puffy and Ciroc and, and certainly with Yeezy and Adidas. And and the thing that, that Kanye got was this 15 percent royalty uh, from Adidas uh, per shoe, which was like basically unheard of. And, you know, and, and that's like three times more than Michael Jordan's rumored to get uh, on, on his on his shoes from Nike. Why did Adidas make this kind of uh wild deal well you know it's because i don't think anybody thought that it was going to be as big as it was but also you know why not right kanye had been uh at nike to begin with the air yeezys or i remember like those early uh easy high tops they were kind of this almost a novelty item like limited edition runs i think nike paid kanye a few million bucks and made the shoes and it was a good look for him so he wanted to get more into fashion and things like that but you know i think he always felt that they weren't really taking him seriously. And, you know, he was sitting here watching like Jay and Puff and Dre and all these guys sign these incredible deals and, you know, and, and become billionaires or close to it. And, you know, I think he felt that, that he could do the same thing. And so, you know, he recognized the value of ownership. And so he always insisted on maintaining ownership of the Yeezy brand throughout the Nike process and and eventually throughout the Adidas process. And, you know, insisting on ownership early with Nike meant that he could take the Yeezy brand over to Adidas. And so this deal was negotiated. It was like in, I don't know, was it 20, 2015? I think it was like 2013. Or 2013. Okay. He, he comes over from Nike. Um, Scooter Braun actually helps negotiate the deal. He'd been uh, co-managing Kanye uh, for, for some period of time. He did a stint as Kanye's co-manager there. And um, they were able to put together this this like pretty incredible deal, but you know, I guess from Adidas's point of view, yeah, why not? You know, like who who would have ever thought that this would be a billion dollar brand? And it's like, well, even if it were, then why not? You know, have a have a big piece of that. Kanye, meanwhile, feels validated. He finally has this company behind him, um, you know, who's really giving him ownership, and he kind of pours everything into it. And but I just remember, you know, uh, uh, when I went out to write the story. Um, I actually wore a pair of uh, Jordans <laughs> and I walked into Kanye's house with these Jordans and um, he or somebody who's, you know, greeted me at the door was like, you need to put on these these little cloth booties over your shoes. And I thought at first it was because he didn't want the Jordan to sort of like sully 
the you know the Adidas household but no because he had these like special plaster floors that could only be fixed by a crew that had to be flown in from Bruges and so like you couldn't scuff them but I, I remember sitting down with him and one of the first things he said was like oh I, I always you know love the Jordans and and um, those Jordan ones that you're wearing like that was one of the first sneakers I ever sketched. So I figured it'd be an interesting conversation piece. But that was really like his intent was to go after Jordan um, and and to create, you know, this um, this sneaker brand that, that, could, that could really kind of compete on that level. It was going after Jordan from the sneakers. It was going after Jordan in terms of being one of the richest black men in America. All of these statements and accolades that were really important for Ye at the time. And the timing here is also big too, because this is right at the moment where sneaker culture, especially in the social media era, really becomes what it is with hype culture and the sneakers app and drops and making sure that you just perfect that. And yay, learned a lot of this from watching how Jordan did it over the years as well. And it's that slow demand building things, the exact opposite of what we talked about in the Reebok episode in terms of what they did with the S dots and G units. You build that slowly over time. And it really wasn't until 2018, 19 that they start mass producing these things at a level where Kanye is selling enough quantities of these to, you know, you do the math, they're selling a billion dollars worth of pairs on this on an annual basis from as a revenue perspective. Kanye gets his 50% royalty of that. You apply a multiple to that and then he becomes a billionaire and you're able to consistently have that there that it's that it's through. So the timing of this works. And also this is around the time that Adidas is pushing its ultra boost, going back to the technology thing and tapping into that as well. The other thing that I think Adidas did to maximize the allure and the popularity of Yeezy without ruining the oversupply, this is something that a lot of sneaker companies do, but creating the replica looking sneakers that aren't quite the ones, but are more accessible. So they had their whole Adilet version that the sneakers that kind of looked like Yeezys, but were clearly inspired by them, but weren't. Adidas could sell those at mass quantities for like 50, 60, 70 bucks, the same way that Nike could have its sneakers that kind of look like Jordans, but clearly aren't official Jordans and stuff. And that in a lot of ways can be where the real moneymaker could be from a top line perspective or from a bottom line perspective. And then by the late 2010s, the articles and the headlines are less about Adidas can't catch Nike. What happened to Adidas? It's more, oh shit, look, Adidas is right behind Nike and they're starting to catch up to them, which is really cool to see. You have your, your Cadillac and you have your Chevy and, you know, maybe that the Chevy or the, the Cadillac helps sell the Chevys. And then, you know, eventually people want to trade in their Chevy for the Cadillac. reference. And I think it, it just to have that that sort of like prestige shoe at the top of the line, it, it kind of like raises all, all the other ones as well. And, um, you know, and I think whereas Nike saw Kanye, you know, maybe in that way and had these very limited edition drops uh, of the, the original Yeezys, um, you know, they were never, they never thought it could be sort of a mass produced sort of a thing, you know, and to be fair, no non-athlete had ever sold anything in a way that could compete with Jordan. So, you know, why would they think that it could scale up in that way? But, but that mechanic of the limited edition drops, which, right, every year there was a Jordan, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, et cetera. I, I personally like the 11s and, and the 1s the most, but, you know, to each their own. Uh, there was going to be a easy season. There was going to be a different, you know, and it was the, the colorway. I think even more than Jordan, uh, there, there was the, the variation of the colorways. You know, it was almost more Apple-esque, right? You, you stick to a silhouette. Uh, you have, like, fewer distinct product lines but you have more variation in, in color and, and, and things like that and, and that was super successful for for Yeezy um in, in bringing it out to be as big as it was but at the same time you know all this stuff has come out now obviously in fall of 2022 Kanye you know goes on a series of uh horrific anti-semitic rants really forces Adidas's hand he says something like I can say anti-semitic shit and Adidas still can't fire me and, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know what he was thinking because there was a morals clause in his contract. And so they did. They broke up the deal. Uh, I mean, I guess he was probably thinking, how could Adidas give up like over a billion dollars in revenue by, by calling out this deal? But, you know, again, it goes back to the history. Uh, when you have a company, any company really, but especially a company with, you know, with a history uh, of affiliation with the Nazi party, 
um, you know, you, you can't really be seen um, condoning uh, anti-Semitic rants, you know, no matter how well your sneakers are selling. I mean, it, it's it's like an existential crisis um, to, to be sort of associated with something like that. Um, and so, of course, you know, now now that that has happened, we've started to, to hear things kind of trickle out that actually, you know, this wasn't just an isolated incident. And there was some story like many years ago that Kanye had gone to Germany and, and seen some prototype of a shoe that he didn't like. And he took a uh, took a marker and, and drew a swastika on it. And, you know, in front of these German executives who are horrified because, you know, it's horrifying, but it's also illegal, uh, I think, to to do in Germany. Of course, there there were there were other incidents, sort of of that ilk, that sort of came out of the woodwork that had had never really been reported until after his very public blowups. But you know, despite all the success of Yeezy, the company now finds itself in this very awkward place where you know it's sitting on. I mean, what is it? It's something around a billion dollars of inventory. I think Adidas had started like selling some of the excess inventory. Of course, some of the profits uh, do go to Kanye, but they, you know, they linked up with um, Foundation for George Floyd's family, and and also I think the the Anti Defamation League, and, and so a lot of the profits were going to go there. Um, and I think they sold a couple hundred million dollars worth of shoes that way. But now, you know, they're still kind of stuck. Uh, they kind of, in light of what's been going on in the Middle East and um, the rise of anti-Semitism you know, around the world, um, they've kind of put that on hold too. And and again, I think that's why. It's great that we're recording this episode now. I mean, it's it's you know it's such a sticky question, and it you know it gets to the root of so many things that that we're we're looking at in the world right now. I mean, right now Kanye is is totally toxic, and and you can't be selling his shoes. Is it going to be that way all along? The founder of Adidas was a member of the Nazi Party, and and people went and bought his shoes eventually. I don't think anything is forever um, when it comes to this sort of thing. It you know it speaks to to how big that easy deal was, but also, you know, the risks to, to tying up with somebody who was bringing this, these risks with him. And um, they kind of continued along with it. This is the ultimate version of key person risk. Key person risk is often used to the hypothetical, what if you get hit by a bus? But it's also, what if you say some horrible anti-Semitic comments time and time again, and then other stuff comes up. And then now for a company that was doing $17 billion in sales, this product line alone accounted for 12% uh, percent of that at its peak, plus all of the derivative shoes that were clearly expired by Yeezy that didn't exactly take the Yeezy brand as well, because that's another ethical question, right? You may not sell those, but what about those lookalike shoes that look like Yeezys? Is it still ethical to sell those? So there's so many compounding aspects of it. And I know that we'll get into all of that with Yeezy and even Yeezy Gap and the origins more because you and I are definitely going to do a full Yeezy breakdown eventually. But I think this is also a good time, at least for the Adidas story. We talked a lot about why this at least worked initially with the rise for Yeezy, but it also didn't work for all of the people that Adidas tried to partner with as well, because you look at someone like Beyonce and what they tried to do with Ivy Park, that deal I believe it was 2019 when they initially made that deal in the announcement. They thought that that was going to be another Yeezy level collaboration because of how popular Beyonce was at the time. But as you and I know, because we've talked about it in past episodes and now we're going to break it down here, it didn't work out that way. You know, to me, the reason it didn't work out is because people can get to know superstars fairly well from afar, right? Or at least whatever that superstar wants to convey to them. Um, but there's some things that you sort of can't help but pick up. And I think, you know, one of one of those things is is passion and sort of like an authentic obsession with, you know, design or sound or something like that. And I think that's why Beats by Dre works so well, right? Because if you know anything about Dr. Dre, I mean, he's not the most sort of available celebrity, right? He's, he's a bit reclusive. But if you know anything about him, you know that he's obsessed with sound. And he's a perfectionist. I mean, the guy's only put out, you know, a handful of uh, was it three studio albums in his in his whole career. I mean, this guy takes a decade to to put out a you know a single solo album. So, um, you know, I I think that people were very receptive to the idea of him creating a headphone line because they thought, well, if it's good enough for Dr. Dre, it's good enough for me, and 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 they sort of like trust him. To, to really perfect whatever it is that, that you know he's putting in their ear, uh, whether physically or or musically, and um, and I think the same was true for Kanye. You know, people 
might not have liked Kanye. The fact is the guy is obsessed uh, with design and the way things look and, and feel and texture and, and all of that. And he didn't need to be so focused on fashion and footwear and all this stuff. Like he was one of the most, you know, is, was one of the most successful recording artists and uh, producers, not just of our generation, but like ever. So um, he clearly was pushing this stuff, the fashion, uh, the footwear, even, you know, even when he clearly wasn't making money off of it, he was losing money off of it, but he just really cared about it so much. And I think people can feel that passion and, you know, and, and it translates, I guess, I just don't get the sense that Beyonce is, you know, is sitting like sitting there at home at two in the morning, like ripping up, you know, designs for track suits and like calling <laughs> Adidas and being like, you need to, you need to like put a line through that. And, and in a way, I mean, you remember there were some ads that they did with her where I think they tried to sort of convey that, right? They had, they had her like with all this Adidas stuff everywhere in her house. Remember that one? It was like in the big house that she and Jay have in, in, um, in Bel Air. And, and, you know, it was just like all these different Adidas things. And you're, you're sort of invited to think that, that she really is up, you know, all hours kind of trying to perfect her, her product line. But it just didn't quite resonate in that way. So it may be kind of a long answer, but that's why I think it didn't um, It didn't work out. I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying that I'm a Beyonce fan, been to her concerts, always love them. I consider myself a member of the Beehive, but I think you're absolutely right. I don't see the same connection there. I told you this in the Reebok episode that we did where that clip of you walking around with Kanye and he has these rows and rows of shoes. I can't see that same thing happening with Beyonce. One, she's not gonna let you into her house in that type of way. I mean, I know that there was that ad, but that was a bit more created versus I feel like the yay thing was like, oh yeah, this is what I'm working on right now. I don't see that type of connection. And I also think she comes from a slightly different era of celebrity where she's essentially someone that rose up as a teen star. And I think that in that type of era, you saw a lot of your peers go through very public struggles and things like that. So you, especially in the 90s when she's growing up, she's been on a record deal for almost 30 years now, you're going to be more guarded and it's going to lead yourself to not necessarily being as open the same way that someone like Kanye is much to his fault, but it's going to lead to some of these more interviews and things like that that don't necessarily bring out the persona and the personal aspect. I actually did a Trapital piece talking about this back in February when the news announced that Adidas had dropped the brand and there was a 50% sales decline for Ivy Park and there was a $200 million drop in Adidas' sales projection because of what happened with the Ivy Park brand. And some people that replied to my email that were members of the Beehive said, this is one person that said that she's been a Beehive member since the House of Darion days, said she's more of an artistic god than an aspirational figure. We know nothing about her day-to-day -day lifestyle and her icon status benefits from that. Her ability to remain a mystery is rare currency. Someone else said, it doesn't feel like Beyonce yourself would wear the brand to work out. People want to buy an experience. Ivy Park is yet to deliver that experience. So those are some quotes that I've, I've, I've thought about since then. I know that those are anecdotal, it's, but, but I do think that there's similar things that come from it. The same way that you mentioned the 2 a.m. piece of it, I could imagine Beyonce doing that with her music. I could imagine her doing that with her touring as well, especially yeah, like the homecoming documentary, how she's directing, no, you need to do this. You need to be in this corner. And even her training blue for the Renaissance tour and stuff like that. Yeah, I just don't know if it was there. And I think the other slight nuance too is that Ivy Park had a pretty wide product line, at least when it first came out. You had shoes, you had tops, you had bottoms. And I think anytime you have all of those types of things, I think it's tougher because each of them have different aspects where footwear really is its own category and it's tough to kind of be a catch-all in that way. Beyonce does have this sort of godlike aura around her. And, you know, it's like, does she even need to work out like this she just woke up like this right like you sort of don't get the sense that she does these earthly things like working out you know it's just i don't know everything is on a cloud uh <laughs> in some kind of divine fantasy land um i mean I, you know obviously she's a human being she of course she does what human beings do but um but but i you know i think that we think kanye said it himself he, he had a quote uh he said you know with with jay you only see the win you don't see the struggle and with me, you see the struggle, you know, and the wind. I think I'm botching the quote, but it was something like that. And I think it was before 
the the 444 era and the lemonade era and so you know you do see the struggle a little bit more of jay and you know occasionally of beyonce but but you know i do think that that kanye always saw himself as an underdog and and that was always part of his mentality and and you know but i think that that also helped sell shoes you know and uh and just just having that that the struggle uh, you know i think that people can identify with but i do think that people can also understand the dynamics of ownership right and they understand that Kanye owns a piece of, of this brand. It's called Yeezy and he owns a piece of it, you know, just as um, Dre owned Beats by Dre, you know. So the bigger a star is, like if you were a, a pop superstar, you can get such big checks to team up with a, with a big company. You know, it, it's not really worth necessarily taking a huge risk to, to get you know, that much ownership. But um, if you were like, let's say Kanye when Kanye did his easy deal, like he was in sort of a bad place. Um, you know, it was not like they were giving him that much money, you know, up front. They were, they were giving him a lot of back end, letting him have ownership, that kind of thing. Um, I think people do identify with that and, and they would, you know, on some level rather support. Although to be fair, I think a lot of people don't even know that Kanye has anything to do with easy. I mean, you see people walking around all over the world and it's like, do they, do they know that this is Kanye's shoe or not? Um, I think probably most of them do, but not all of them. Yeah, that was always an interesting disconnect where I think maybe even back to the Beyonce point where people assumed that the Beehive consumer of Beyonce's music was going to be the same consumer of Beyonce's product. And we know for Yeezy, it's slightly different because there were all these memes about online where the active person that buys all of the Yeezys couldn't name you five songs that came out on the college dropout album. Do you know what I mean? It, so it always felt like there was a bit of this cultural disconnect between the Yeezy hype beast fan versus the person that grew up with the old Kanye. So I know that some of this exists there as well. But with this topic, though, take it a step back. So we we're talking about, of course, the rise and fall of Yeezy, the very quick rise and fall of Ivy Park Adidas collaboration, and then a bit of a, I don't want to say downturn, but a bit of a downward trend for Adidas compared to where things were three, four years ago. And in terms of them being right neck and neck with Nike and now, as we're about to enter 2024, it's not so close. So do we think that that's just these big partnerships not working out in the same type of way? Or do we think that there's something else going on between why Adidas wasn't necessarily able to continue the trajectory that it had at the end of the last decade? Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of it um, comes down to the dissolution of, of the easy deal. But also, you know, don't forget, like, even when that was going down, the sales of Yeezys had slowed. I mean, you can't keep up that kind of insane pace uh, for forever. And, you know, it was already kind of, I think, reaching a bit of a plateau, um, just to, just as anything would. So, you know, I, I think it would have been easier to see Adidas as sort of settling into like, you know, the 1A to Nike's number one role um, if it hadn't been for, for, you know, what happened with Kanye. And now it's just kind of like, but, it, 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 you know, even that would have been a hard place to, to maintain given Nike's dominance in, in the culture. But um, but but now instead, it you know, it, it sagged a little bit further and kind of still in, in somewhat of a damage control mode. Yeah. And I think there's other bets that probably don't get talked about as much that I think were quite popular because with the rise of the late 2010s, the biggest athlete that Adidas had, if I remember correctly, was likely James Harden. He was huge. And especially in 2018, they have that run where forced that Golden State team with Kevin Durant to a game seven. They epically lose it, but they probably came the closest that anyone came to, you know, knocking off that team when they had Kevin Durant in their prime. And then four years later, James Harden now mid-30s, now through a team in four years. And it just doesn't burn quite the same way. Like let's say, for instance, Adidas would have been able to land Steph Curry instead if those deals happened somewhere around the same time. Could we have been having a different story where now Adidas is the brand that was connected with them the same way that Under Armour was for an extent? And obviously Under Armour is nowhere close to either of these brands, but there's some other stuff going on too there that I think some of it was just timely. And yeah, I think to your point, you clearly reached a point from a growth perspective. It could have been interesting to see if Yeezy was really going to be 
Adidas's version of Jordan, what was that annual Yeezy season that can at least keep people coming back? And sure, it may not be as big as it was when the Jordan 11s come out, but it's still an annual billion dollar business plus. And it's unfortunate that it didn't get there. But I have to assume that that is probably part of it, which I think also leads to one of the other challenges that I know we see where we just haven't seen as many of these big deals happen in general in recent years. Beyonce was probably the last one that we've seen, and maybe the tides are starting to turn with a bit of that, a bit of the key person risk here. Yeah, I think you said it. I mean, key person risk, right? And it could be like a Kanye type of key person risk. Let's not forget about Kyrie. I mean, you know, that's kind of like none of those issues, obviously, with Beyonce, but it just didn't work. So if you're shelling out, you know, a lot of money uh, for a big celebrity, yeah, you never know what they're going to do. Or they could be as graceful as as Beyonce and just somehow it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, I think that you might see some of these brands like take a breather from, from, from making these big commitments. Um, you know, or or sort of like do more to go to startup mentality, like more of a spray and pray, uh, try to pick up some younger or cheaper stars who, who could who could create something that might be the next easy or the next whatever it is. Get get involved earlier earlier on, uh, and not have to to pay up. You know, for some of these big time superstars. And I think with that, we can probably start to close things out. Go to some of these categories here. Uh, dark horse move for Adidas. I would say that the the dark horse great move is um, signing up with Pharrell. I think. Pharrell does not get nearly enough credit um, in the footwear space. He makes some great shoes. You know, I, I have a pair of, of his Adidas low tops. They're great. And I think in many ways could fill some of the gaps that uh, that Kanye left. And, you know, Pharrell obviously is uh, a fashion icon, you know, and, and really has his bona fides and, you know, is, is not gotten in any kind of Kanye sort of trouble. You know, he seems to be a, a really sort of reliable person that, that, you know, brands like Adidas can trust. So, you know, I, I do actually think that we're going to see we're going to see them, um, you know, kind of press that more. And, um, you know, I, I do I do wonder if it's Dark Horse move it could, could pay off even more in the future. Still don't think those shoes look as good as the Yeezys, unfortunately, but um, I just can't wear Yeezys anymore. So there we go. Yeah, it would be cool to see if you could do something tapping in with, OK, now he's the men's director at Louis Vuitton. Do you have some type of Louis Vuitton Adidas collab the same way that Virgil had the Air sneakers with Jordan? Like, what does that look like? Oh, that could be great. And, you know, is there a way that a couple of years down the line you somehow like do a Pharrell X Yeezy or and you kind of like get some of the stink off of it that way. I don't know. I don't know. It's probably not the time to be contemplating that. But I do think that that, you know, that's a that was a great move. And, and I think that, you know, we'll, we're going to see more of that in the future. My dark horse move is the continuation with soccer, especially as soccer has just continued to gain more and more popularity, especially in North America over the past decade. Plus, Adidas is right linked with that. Adidas is they've had a partnership with Messi. Two decades ago, they had the partnership with David Beckham. So they've been able to follow along that. And I think as World Cup continues to just grow and grow in terms of its popularity, at least in North America, it's already been very popular worldwide. But Euro Cup and everything else, Adidas is the brand, the signature brand. And I think we'll continue there from that perspective. When you think of soccer, you think of Adidas and, um, you know, you want to be uh, involved in a growth industry. I think soccer, I mean, obviously it's huge around the world, but in, in the U.S. It's only, it's only getting bigger and bigger. What's your missed opportunity? Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, we, we got into that in the beginning a little bit, but there was an opportunity for Adidas to sign Michael Jordan. And I think people don't realize, you know, maybe casual observers, um, how much of a long shot Nike was when Nike did sign Jordan. Uh, you know, there's no reason that Adidas couldn't have gone in there and gotten him. But again, you know, they were stuck on this idea that uh, only big men sell shoes or something. And, um, and, you know, and there you have it. So they literally made a whole movie about this. <laughs> I mean, I could try to be cute and think of a different one, but that is by far the missed opportunity. Because like you, it kind of laid things out. It could have changed the trajectory for everything like it did for Nike. And then who won and lost the most? I think this is another one we probably also agree with. Kanye, he, he, he won the most, he lost the most. I mean, he became a billionaire. He was briefly the wealthiest uh, entertainer in the world, you know, any genre or forget music, just like at all. I mean, he was one of the probably 500 wealthiest people on the planet. And then he, uh, and then he just self-immolated. I mean, he just completely um, 
threw it all away. And, you know, I mean, clearly he's not well, um, but that's no excuse for hate speech. I hope he gets the help he needs. It, it has to be him. It's it's really unfortunate how it all went down. And maybe just so we don't end things on that note, I'll also give a shout out to just the whole Adidas Originals line, because I think one of the things we talked about with the Nike episode is that not all successful shoe companies have had a signature shoe that you can look at and be like, oh yeah, that's their shoe. And Adidas has that. Adidas actually has a few of those and that's pretty cool. And I think the fact that that's another shoe that is still stayed timeless, even as it's gone through ups and downs of popularity, no different than the Air Force One or Timberland Boots or Cortez or Dunks or, or Jordans or things like that. It's been cool to see that shoe continue to live on. You know, as iconic logos go, the three stripes, I mean, it almost doesn't you know, need to be a specific model, right? You just see the, the three stripes, you know, diagonal on uh, on some on some sneakers and, and you know what you're looking at. So, you know, I think that's just um, it's just a masterstroke of marketing. And we didn't talk about this, but I think they bought the, the logo uh, it, like in the middle of the 20th century for like. 1600 bucks and a couple bottles of whiskey so <laughs> that maybe that was the, the dark dark horse best move and the fact that they had two logos because they have that and the trefoil as well yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah this is a fun one now uh shout out to adidas i'm glad that we were able to break this one down and we'll we'll get to yeezy eventually but for anyone listening if you haven't listened to the reebok one check that out and then definitely make sure you stay tuned for that one when we queue it up amen thanks so much for having me on dad thank you if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.